Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is our 20th episode of Personalization Outbreak and our third episode on season two. Our first two episodes this season discussed how personalization is changing and challenging the traditional norms in higher education and in corporations. Now, this week, we'll see its effects on healthcare. Our guest today is Dr. Niha Nanda, whom I refer to as the paradigm disruptor. You see, during my many conversations with Niha, I learned that she enjoys solving problems that allows her to be creative and question paradigms, something that we should all be doing today. Now, Dr. Nanda serves as the medical epidemiologist for Keck Medicine at the University of Southern California, where she leads the preparation and response to emerging infectious diseases. So you could imagine what she's been through since this outbreak started. Now, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Nanda has led protocol and guideline development for patient and healthcare workers' safety. She's an active member of the University of Southern California's Policy Committee for COVID-19, where she has served as an advisor for reopening plans for the different schools across the university. Now, today, we'll talk about the importance of co-designing the future of healthcare with patients and how to find the right balance between personalization and standardization on a systemic level. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. So, Niha, first of all, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Glenn. My pleasure. So, Niha, I know that you are passionate. And, and, and extraordinarily genuine about the care of those patients that you serve. But COVID has brought uh, another level of intimacy in the work uh, that you do that has really changed the paradigm for what patient centricity really means. Give us some perspective of what you've been through, uh, what the research is telling us, particularly maybe around um, the African-American and Hispanic populations, but what, is this, what does patient centricity mean? It seems to me that for so many years, we've been saying that, that we're patient-centered, but we're really not. Glenn, actually, that's a, very, that's a question that's so timely, given all the scientific data that is becoming available almost by the day. We get new data. And one thing that has that is also available in the popular media, we know that COVID really showed us our weaknesses as it relates to the, the potential gaps that we have when we are trying to be inclusive. And that very nicely ties into what we've talked about, the balance between standardization and personalization of care. And where is the right balance so we can we can actually conquer the structural racism that exists in the society. And with that, talking about patient centricity, 
what has been very, very important for, uh, for, for clinicians and for people like myself, we are clinicians and we are responsible for system changes is inclusion. And if you think about it at a patient level, as a patient, I want to be a part of decision-making. I want to have a shared decision-making. And it, the onus lies on my provider to have the cultural maturity to understand where I'm coming from, even though we hail from different backgrounds. And I think the reason why this is so important, and as you see in COVID now, we know that about uh, the, black, the, bl uh, the black population is about three times at higher risk for hospitalization, four times higher risk of mortality compared to the other groups. And you know what? This is not something that we've only seen with COVID. Even if you look at the past, you know, the number of, the, the percentage of actually mothers who have suffered pregnancy-related complications is about three times higher in Blacks compared to whites. Talk about infant mortality. That's also higher in this group. So the point being that this is an opportune time for us to become inclusive in our interactions, which will obviously impact the outcome. As always, uh, Niha, you get my head spinning. So let me go back a minute because I'd be, I'd be curious uh, about your perspective on the following. When we talk about finding balance between standardization and personalization, when we talk about uh, the delivery of care to a patient uh, where the patient wants to be involved in shared decision making, I'd be curious to know, how would you define balance? Because I think that what we're all trying to find in this, uh, this pandemic and as we move, you know, to to herd immunity and getting back to some semblance of normality that, you know, we can't go back to bad habits and uh, taking action on the things that surprised us during the pandemic and finding that balance. What, do you, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's simply put, let's standardize the processes that are involved in getting the patient to the caregiver. Simply put, you know, you can imagine scheduling, waiting time. Uh, and when we are with the person at that time, let's talk about individualizing our care to the patient. And this could be as simple as, okay, let's take a perfect example. Uh, when someone has been exposed to someone with COVID, we tell them, uh, you need to self-isolate at home, right? For 10 days till you're asymptomatic. Very easy as a, as a physician for me or a caregiver to tell the patient that. But what's personalization is asking him, are you really able to do that, mm. right? You'll see majority of the households in our community are unable to do that. That's where we put action. Uh, we turn our words into actions by let's create a setup so that you can actually self-isolate. Majority of the people have a room, let alone telling them to use a separate restroom. 
which is even more important if you want to prevent transmission. That's one example with COVID. Other things you can think of, first, we, if we just tell the patient, these are the medications you need to take, talk about hypertension, talk about anything, but then will you really do it? I need to create a system such that I can overcome the obstacles the patient or the person has in their daily life by help in setting up reminders, you know, at noon, then at 6 p.m. That's what I kind of, refer, I'm referring to as personalized care. And uh, with the pandemic, isolating yourself is a perfect example. I could even talk more about therapeutics where, uh, but I won't get into that. But that also requires a lot of personalization because all the drugs that we have offered except for one drug, Remdesivir, uh, all have research, some that we are using have received an emergency approval and have not received the formal blessing from FDA. So what that has required is a discussion with a patient every time, which is the way it should be when we are offering this drug to you. So, so uh, Niha, how, how has your, how have your perspectives changed uh, based upon the way you interacted with patients uh, last year to how you approach them this year. In other words, clearly personalization is where all this is going. But just as a physician that is dealing with other physicians that may have different views on how their interactions changed, uh, how has that impacted your whole perspective perspective around just being a physician and the, and the criticality of that responsibility to that human, what changed for you? Yeah, that's a very, very uh, rich question. Uh, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll break it up with my interaction with my colleagues and interaction with patients and actually their family members. Perfect. Because remember now in this pandemic, we are trying to keep family members not coming in to see the patients because right. of obvious reasons. So with my colleagues and peers, there is this sense of, uh, there's this sense of, uh, of, of, of uh, what should I say? That we have a common goal. Because we all have been not in the know. We've been in the unknown. Every day brings us more light in the right direction and gets us closer to it. So there is this sense of we are in it together. Hmm. Interestingly, a lot of our peers are from, are, are, uh, are from different ethnicities. There are varied cultural backgrounds uh, and educational backgrounds. Um, and I think with so much of effort going towards uh, understanding different backgrounds, I think at a personal level, uh, not only I, many of my peers sometimes find themselves making a proactive effort of trying to do that, um, which perhaps was in our subconscious in the past, mm. which can only be better if you think about it. Of course. Uh, and also with my colleagues, I should also say trainees. Uh, you know, for whatever reason in the academic world, it's believed that people with similar demographic uh, demographics 
tend to come together. That is, someone who has the same ethnicity is likely to mentor someone with a similar ethnicity or a cultural or educational background. Uh, simply being aware of that um, is good because that will only make us a better citizen. So that's with peers and colleagues and trainees. With patients, uh, with, with, with knowing that some communities are obvious, are, have been underrepresented. Uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, sometimes it's very helpful to share with the patient and acknowledge that we know in the past, this is what has happened. Uh -huh. And you'd be surprised how your relationship changes with the patient. I've never done that in the past. Wow, that's powerful. Because, you know, it's not only COVID, even with uh, H1N1 or with polio, go back. And if we look at our roots, this is something that has manifested again and again. Um, so having that conversation uh, brings a sense of openness mm -hmm. in your interaction. Uh, and, uh, and that helps break uh, a lot of barriers that sometimes one experiences in the role of a physician and what the patient feels in his or her role. Um, the last group is their relatives, their loved ones. Okay. I think, again, what you share with the patients, making sure they're on the same page as the patients is very helpful. And acknowledging the fact that they can't be with their loved one, even in the last minutes, is something that, uh, Emotionally is a roller coaster, not only for them, but for us also. And just being in it with them uh, makes your bond stronger. I say this because after we've cared for patients who have been discharged from the hospital, uh, whether the outcome was ideal or not so ideal, having some kind of communication with the patients even after that. Um, tells you that you created a bond, an, an emotional one, not just a caregiver and a patient bond. First of all, um, yeah, I didn't expect to ask you that question, <laughs> <laughs> but but I appreciate you answering it. I think um, it's led me to the, the to the follow up question, and so you answered it beautifully. And I think our listeners and viewers are really going to appreciate that because. Um, that's something that they didn't expect historically from uh, their physician or caregiver, caregivers. But so what do you think stood in the way of, of moving in that type of a direction that COVID forced us to uh, in the past? What stood in the way and, and what are we going to make sure that we do as physicians, that you do as physicians and your colleagues do to make sure that we don't go to bad habits? Yeah. I think, so why did we not do this as proactively as we are doing it now? I think has to do with, with a constant awareness that perhaps wasn't there all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and disciplining ourselves, disciplining is not the right word, but that's what's coming to my mind, Disciplining yeah. myself to always have that 
self-awareness yeah. is we are only going to learn by practice. Practice makes perfect. I think it's just the proportion of the, of the morbidity and the mortality that we are faced with with the pandemic that has led us to think this way. And now that we've reached here, how can we make sure we continue to sustain the gains that we have had up until now? I think it's going to be, it's at an individual level. We can try and do our best at an individual level, but then you've got to take it at a system level. Right. And, and that's where you talk about things that we've talked about in the past. Um, constant training with perhaps an avatar of yourself who has a different skin color, mm-hmm. right? Multi-sensory tactics that make you comfortable uh, interacting with groups that may not be demographically similar to you. In addition, talk about it at an uh, organizational level. It's, it's, it's not news anymore that uh, socially vulnerable areas at a higher risk of disease. You know, the simple number is just last week we learned 1% as, as, your, as the vulnerability index increases by 8%, a point, there's a 13% increase in morbid in incidence of COVID. That's the number of new cases in a community and 14% increase in risk of death with every one point increase. I say this because I'm getting out of the realm of individual. I'm moving into a system or a healthcare organization and I'm trying to get the community into the picture. So our, our, our organizations have to be geared moving forward to be more inclusive. And either you tie it to a metric or if you now look at the, what's the return on investment when you go to the boardroom? What's the return on investment? And there is a return on investment because we know firms that are, or, or groups that are more inclusive with, I think uh, it was, uh, the number was 10% increase in gender diversity. Mm-hmm. They see an increase in their earnings before taxes and income to about uh, 3% or it was less than 1%. Yeah. I think stronger correlation has been noted in UK. So I think moving forward, it's not only at an individual level, but it's at a system level that we have to try and get to our true north. So, uh, Niha, before we shift, because I like to talk about inclusion as a growth strategy here. Scott, what are you thinking? Um, well, maybe just uh, at least one, but maybe two quick observations. One, I really am loving in terms of this, the way that the way that Nia's the way that you're speaking about inclusivity um, is you're bringing, you're bringing layers to that that I don't think we often talk about when we talk about inclusivity that I think are important. And especially what you just mentioned, Niha, when you were talking about uh, you went from the individual to, to, the, to the org, right, to the, bigger, to the bigger group. And what I think it might be an important lesson for us to pick up on, Glenn, from what Niha is saying is I think what, the way I would characterize what Niha's inclusivity concept, her domain, right, the one where she thinks inclusivity, what's going on, it's an ecosystem, Right. It's all about ecosystem. She's not looking at an ROI in a simple economic term. Right. She, she's looking at the entire ecosystem that feeds into that ROI. And for example, Neil, when you when you started talking about patient centricity, right, 
Um, the very first thing you did was you talked about people that weren't the patient, <laughs> right? But the patient was right in there too. And, and, and so that's what I'm saying. I think it's an important, I think it's easy to just take, oh yeah, of course you should talk to the relatives. Of course you should talk to the colleagues and others. But no, I think this is an important point we have to underline because what she's doing with inclusivity is she's helping to point us not towards the exact people in the room at the moment in the process, right? But actually looking beyond it to the entire ecosystem that requires and benefits from that process, but also can be damaged severely because of how we run that process. So I appreciate that. And I'll save my second part for the end, but Neha, I'm loving your ecosystem approach towards inclusivity. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> right on. No, you're making me think about inclusivity in a different way by thinking of it as an ecosystem, something that we're, the interdependence of it. it. It brings interdependence into inclusivity in a way that I really haven't heard a lot of other people talk about it. Did you want to comment on that, Niha, or no? I, uh, I, I like where Scott is going, the way he's kind of called it an ecosystem, which, which, which takes me to think about... Uh, Glenn, I don't know what you have in store. No, go. Uh, Just go. This is the beauty of this conversation. It can flow. Keep going. Okay, perfect. So, you know, when you talk about uh, disrupting an ecosystem uh, so we can reach our true north, I think it's very imperative for us to know why did we reach here? Yes, inclusion is something we know we haven't been very, uh, uh, we haven't been very, very conscious of. Let's put it that way. But why? So to me, it sounds almost like if you look at our, our history, uh, you look at the, 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 you know, the huge trial that was done in Alabama, where we enrolled patients who had syphilis about 600 of them, and they were not offered treatment, even when treatment was available. It was from 1930 to 1970. I think it was 40 years. And we did not offer treatment to the people who actually had syphilis because they were part of a trial. Uh, and majority of them were Black. Hmm. Uh, that tells you that, see, our history is also something that has fostered lack of inclusivity, and we need to debunk those, um, those, 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 those processes that facilitated that. Um, and I, I'll stop there, but I just wanted to kind of remark on one instance of what our history has done, and we shouldn't let history repeat itself, and need to be sensitive of the processes that facilitated uh, that in the past. Well, the, the, the reality is, is that systems and protocols have historically been very exclusive uh, because the goal in the mission um, was to do the things that we were most comfortable with that, and I'm talking about across all sectors, uh, that uh, can make us make money um, and can drive outcomes uh, that we felt comfortable driving. Uh, but now we live in a new world. And if I, if I were to ask people, uh, which I have, what inclusion means, uh, you would be amazed at some of the uh, responses uh, that, that I've received. And, but the fundamental one that I've never received is that inclusion 
is a growth strategy. In, in other words, uh, the broader and more inner, interconnected our perspectives, uh, the more confidently we can co-design the future together. And that's fundamentally what's been missing. Uh, we've never really co-designed uh, the future together. And people can continue to uh, use the excuse of regulations. We learned that uh, COVID exp exposed that excuse. Uh, but it's fundamentally, do we have the, uh, have we had the right conversations to propel the right actions? And so with that, Niha, how would you as a physician uh, define what inclusion means? Like, what does it mean to you? Um, inclusion as a physician, if I only wear that hat, yeah. simply to me is irrespective of the background of my patient, whether it's educational, cultural, ethnic, all backgrounds, I and the patient are actively making decisions for us. Beautiful. See, <laughs> I can tell you that that wow, um, and Niha, that is a powerful, powerful response because what you just said is you've shifted the balance of power to the individual, and yet we're still having a narrative. And by the way, I want to make sure that our listeners and viewers know that uh, it's an important narrative. But we're still talking about belonging. And you already have gone to the power of decision making. You see, my point is that I think sometimes when we have these discussions around inclusion, um, that we're still at the narrative around permission rather than action, which then oftentimes takes it from from. Uh, away from strategy and implementation to an initiative that may come and go. So what stands in the way of healthcare providers being more inclusive? And what are actions that we should be considering now? Because let's face it, we've witnessed the urgency with the pandemic. But I think when it comes to uh, the Black and Hispanic uh, in other uh, diverse populations, uh, but particularly the Black and Hispanic populations, we're so susceptible to chronic disease states. Can't we take what we've learned from COVID and begin applying uh, preventative measures right now to how we view um, the risks involved with chronic diseases? I threw a lot out, out there for you to process. Take your time. <laughs> uh, I think. If we had to, what can we do now um, to conquer what we have been uh, what we have been struggling with is today, and I'm going to first talk about COVID. Please, you have a vaccine out there today. That is relatively safe. I don't say it's hundred percent safe because in medicine you never say anything is hundred percent. That's life. Um, and today we know that about 60% of the whites are, of, of our white patients or population is willing to accept the vaccine. If you look at it as a nation, you know, at, the, at a country level. Mm -hmm. With blacks, it's 40%, 20% difference. 
today, what I can do now is start having a conversation about vaccine hesitancy with my patient, which is only going to help us. It'll because we know vaccine is going to prevent so many things. It'll help us reach a state of, like you said, semi-normalcy uh, or a new normal. And it will, it will break so many, uh, so many um, uh, uh, invisible barriers that I may have had between the patient and I. Mm -hmm. Because my conversation is going to start with acknowledging what our history has taught us and what the big gap COVID has shown us between different communities. And hey, let's be partners, right? The patient and I, to narrow the gap or to dissolve the gap. That's the first thing that comes to my mind that we can do now. And, and so, okay, that's a great one. How do we build partnership with the patient? That, that's a whole other conversation, but I love it. How do we approach, um, how, do we, how do we take the learnings from COVID and rethink our own, rethink protocols uh, for Black and Hispanic communities as it relates to uh, their susceptibility to chronic disease states and how they can be more preventive? Yeah, so I think, we, we've talked about um, making a change at an individual level. And I think we are pivoting now, moving, transitioning, I should say, yeah. to how we can make a change as a system. And that, our true north is that it gets hardwired in the culture. For us to reach that, I think at this time, it may be tying into the metrics. Can we get to... Uh, doing mammograms, you know, say 80% of the females above the age of 50, above the age of 40, should get their mammogram in this pocket of LA County. Yep. And if you do it, there is some reward, you know, figure out a way to incentivize. Um, that's how I think one can get to the community at large mm -hmm. uh, by talking about preventive medicine or colonoscopies or influenza vaccination uh, if you talk about infectious diseases. Yeah. So, so Niha, it's interesting that one of the first questions I asked you was, you know, what does balance mean to you? And I, I, I have felt, you know, during our time today that you've defined it already, that, it be, that balance begins with the individual. And then it moves to the system, right? Because we could, we could always, in other words, balance in today's age of personalization must begin with the individual. And from what I've heard from you, um, I feel that while you personally, <laughs> it, well, professionally, you as an individual see that need. And it's so crystal clear that it begins there. Are there still barriers that make it difficult for, 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 for physicians and caregivers uh, to become, to, to see the need to get to know and become more intimately connected to that individual? 
I mean, I think it's simple. It seems to me that that we can have a couple, you know, several several interactions and feel like we figured it out. But sometimes it takes much more than that. And sometimes the training doesn't give us enough to move it from individual to system. Is this? Do you see where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. I and mean, you can disagree. I'm just wanting to get your perspective. Yeah. So I think when you you touched on how our education system can also include things about uh, inclusion. It can be done very simply at the time of recruiting our residents or our fellows, right? Uh, This is something as an organization or as a program, if we prioritize, that's the kind of individual you can hope to recruit. Then, uh, to try and balance between individual and system, perhaps showcase to the individual the characteristics of the individual patient that are demographic. This person, yeah, the address of the patient is always there yeah. on, the, on the electronic chart. And the ethnicity is also always there. Uh, but I have to click on the medical record a couple of times before I get to that. Mm. You know, <laughs> you can imagine, right? A patient healthcare record. I got to go to the demographics and then I get to the address. Yeah. So maybe things like this can be a little more visible. Mm. And if I knew this person is coming from an area which is very vulnerable my care for the patient is going to be exactly the same for a person who comes from a very elite area. However, perhaps I'll make an effort to have a conversation about his community to get a sense of hesitancy around preventive medicine or you know, so many other things. Uh, so, because at the end of it, after he or she leaves, uh, uh, leaves me after my encounter, he is going to be the messenger back to his community. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so I'm trying to think of a way how at an individual level you can still uh, bridge the process level systems and, uh, and, and, and the individual can leverage off that and obviously the system will and that's really creating a new ecosystem uh, as Scott mentioned. So... When I say the system, I'm going to share a statement with you, and then I'd like for you to react to it. Um, The cultural demographic shift has reached its tipping point. How do you react to that? I think it had reached a tipping point a while back. Hmm. It has now been showcased that it's reached the tipping point. How about this? Metrics and methods to engage increasingly diverse patients. I like that. How do you respond to that statement? I think when you say metrics and methods, it it allows me to think of it Think of the stakeholder involved 
could be an individual mm. and could be a health system or you know any any community system any system a health system an organization um yeah i think that would be a tactic to overcome the the uh, the uh the the lack of cultural diversity that we have yet to experience could i'll i'll ask you this final question and then i like scott to provide some some perspective but how do we get inclusion to go beyond compliance um to something that becomes part of our dna in a healthcare system niha um so a simple answer is uh, we are looking for a cultural shift so we don't have to succumb if, you know for the regulators if i say succumb to regulations it's not smart on my part to say that uh but for the audience and for you where i'm coming from is regulation should be something that uh allows us to reach the bare minimum standards that's where i'm coming from uh but to go over and above what the basic requirement is it requires cultural hardwiring which takes time we all know that i think that that's what we're going through as a nation right now yes the complete cultural rewiring um nia i can't thank you enough for your time today i i know these questions are not easy but um i could always rely on you and ask and in in to uh address the issues that people are thinking about but do not dare to talk about and i think you've inspired well for certainly you've inspired me i'm sure you've inspired scott and you've inspired our audience and i can't thank you enough for for tackling these issues because they're not easy uh but that's why we need we need each other more than ever before uh scott any final commentary yeah I, first i have to give my shout out to my new uh inclusivity ecosystem guru my gosh like oh my gosh like that that really helped me out a lot the way that you were defining and operationalizing inclusivity and i think that's something that that's a thread blend that you and i have to think about deeper and carry over into a lot of conversations but the one of the things that your your approach neha has has given me uh, or at least uh, an observation that's kind of emerged is essentially why inclusivity is so elusive for so many and it's the irony of inclusivity mm. and that there's no such thing as the individual that's what you were saying and you said it in about 15 different ways mm. and and in brilliant ways because you know when you talked about peace and centricity you talked about the patient but the patient is an individual so you started there but it can't end there that's not that's not inclusivity because there is no such thing as an individual that individual that you're talking to is a collection of other individuals who whose lives are independent interdependent upon each other so what i really love is that you are helping us to see that inclusivity it it i don't know that it maybe it does start with the individual but i don't know if it does i think what you're saying is in, inclusivity is rooted in the individual right but it's not contained in it because what you do with your inclusivity is you go forward and backward in space and time which is brilliant right that's my whole approach to anthropology in general 
When you need to connect with somebody and create that interconnectedness with a patient or a family, what you said is, I need to go back to history. And I find that same observation true when we talk about the history of humankind, that the more I stay in today and tomorrow, the more I see difference. The, more, the further back I go, say seven, 7 million years, the more I see nothing but similarity, right? And so you go to the back, you go back into history to reclaim that moment between you and the patient and the patient's ecosystem. And I really love that. But the other thing that I, I'm grateful for is how you're also thinking about this in terms of the future, what inclusivity becomes, right? And so if inclusivity is rooted in the individual, but is contained in the past and the present, right, and the future, what you're helping us to see is something that I would have never put on the page. And that is in order to get there, in order to do this better, we need process. I'm a process killer. I like to throw process out the window and reinvent. But what you're doing is you're helping us remember process is very important and we control process. And if we can control it, maybe we can do something better as opposed to something worse. So just want to say thank you very much for reminding me the importance of process and what I think you're saying underneath all this that is really happy from a, uh, an anthropological point of view is that qualitative analysis, qualitative metrics have never been more necessary. But as you and I know, the reason we use quantitative metrics is because they're easier. But anyway, thank you, my ecosystem teacher. <laughs> Niha, any thank you, Scott. Niha, any final comments? Um, Glenn I, and Scott, I love the way, Scott, how you ended by saying that we need to transition from a quantitative, I shouldn't say transition, there has to be a balance a between a qualitative and a quantitative aspect to every venture we take after this pandemic. I love it. We're going to need your help to do that because very few people do it the way you do. And the way you talk about it, I think, won't scare people who are a little bit afraid of the qualitative um, uh, complexity. Very good. Well, Scott, thank you. Niha, thank you. And as we always end uh, the show, uh, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't, do what others won't, and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you, Niha. We greatly appreciated your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.